everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids. Writing the Rapids is the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often, those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, and about half the time, we get a rejoinder episode, which is a Patreon goal that we have reached, where I talk to a writer who has previously been on the show about what they're doing lately. Well, Jackie S., who's on the show for this rejoinder, doesn't have anything new out, although you should go by Daryl if you have not yet. I just wasn't done talking to her, so I got her back on the show, and we talked for an hour again. This is what that is. If you would like to support the show that breaks its own rules, you can do so at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. I got three tiers of donation levels that all have their own unique benefits, and they are all and they are all illustrated very eloquently over at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. If you'd like to do a one-time donation sort of thing, paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe is the place to do that. Or you could buy my book, Tired, just search the name Tired and my name, Joe Balecki, on Amazon, and you'll find it, and that will uh, be very nice for everybody. So without further ado, let's get back to my second conversation with Jackie S. Okay, so take two. I think it's really funny to... to do a take two because people are gonna think oh take two because she she's back on the show but nope it's actually take two because the last time we were doing this my internet died but i i do want to engage with what we were starting to engage with before my internet died for one to see if that's the reason the internet died um and for two because i think it's interesting to talk about so you in an interview were talking about the reader psychoanalyzing the writer and in my own sort of investigations in myself as to how I want to engage with literary analysis um I've also been thinking a lot about like the psychoanalytic reader and so I think it would be very useful for us to discuss that yeah, I'm I'm into it. I mean, I feel like I'm a little bit away from psychoanalysis, like as a specific like literature. You know, like there was a time when I was really interested in reading a lot of psychoanalysis. Um, I had thought about maybe basing a character on like this British psychoanalyst named Masood Khan, who was the he was kind of like he managed the papers of he was like the sort of he was the the star student of Donald Winnicott. Winnicott, I think, is the one who we know more. You know, he's got these. He's kind of responsible in some ways for an idea of like a true self. He's, um, I mean, like he didn't, a, a lot of ideas that we think of as like complete truisms um, as like kind of like everyday psychology, like folk psychology is actually like digested forms of psychology that was being proposed explicitly um, in the therapeutic literature in the fifties and sixties. Right. And so we have, a lot of concepts that date back to this time like you could think of like abraham maslow and the peak experience right like he gave us a sort of a description of something like that and of course there are experiences of ecstasy there are experiences of the absorption um and whatever i mean that these things are attested to you know in many many literatures but somehow the way that we talk about it does seem to kind of come from that point but masood khan i think is really interesting 
uh, and he's very suppressed, right, in the certain, because he, he was actually drummed out of the British Psychoanalytic Society in the 80s after he released a book, um, and I'm kind of going to forget the title because it has a different title in the British and the English, uh, uh, sorry, in the British and the American uh, uh, publication, but it it's a bunch of case studies in which he just goes completely fucking off on his patients, and he's like just abusing them. Um, and he has this like huge anti-Semitic rant against one of his patients. And he's writing about this like, hmm, see what an insightful analyst I am. Um, but he's just going hard. And, uh, you know, uh, anyway, like it, it was a it was a funny piece of evidence that um, psychoanalysis like may have like maybe like a domain where there's potentially a lot of insight but there's also like not any guardrails uh, mm -hmm. on it and so like it's not a very critical tradition i think like in spite of having like a huge intellectual apparatus attached to it in a way like they have a lot of journals they publish a lot they're like kind of a closed community um but like you're really at the mercy of whichever generation's kind of psychoanalytic luminaries happen to be mm. and so like you know, like if you're in the 80s and you're into Lacan or whatever, like they're really transphobic. And now if you're into Lacan, they're kind of like, eh, kind of, you know, it depends which side of the coin you're on or something like that. You could you could hang out with Derevitier or, or whoever. Um, but like when you think about like, like, how did that change? Like it didn't change because of a conversation internal to psychoanalysis. Like it, it changed because society changed. And psychoanalysis like gradually, gradually caught up, but it's not really capable of seeing itself as doing that, right? It, it wants to represent its own history as if it was like an internal psychoanalytic conversation, which is, I think, you know, the mark of a cult. Um, <laughs> why, why, why am I talking about this? Though? But I think that the, the, the point though was um, not really to talk so much about psychoanalysis, but just to say that like, when readers kind of bring that attitude to a text, I wanted to write something that would sort of annoy them a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, like, I, you know, I was mostly you know, joking around, but I, I was thinking um, not specifically about psychoanalysis, but that somebody would pick up a book like Daryl and they would say, aha, well, this is Jackie. Well, these are Jackie's anxieties. Well, this is Jackie's childhood. Well, here's, here's her emotion in such and such a way. Um, well, they're, they're too refined to use a word like emotion, but you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they, would, um, they would be taking me apart. Um, and I, I kind of wanted um, to have something where the self that was in the book, because yourself is always in a book, but I, I wanted the self in the book to be very refracted and very resistant, um, which, of course, you know, if you're a clever psychoanalyst, then maybe you have an analysis of that uh, decision as well. It's like conspiracy um, theories, right? Like it's always one layer deeper, right? So it's like, oh, you gotta, uh, okay, so I can't tell who jackie is through the book but knowing you know that that was your intention in writing the book there's a psychoanalysis in there but you know uh but i would know that you would or you would know that i would think that you would think that so clearly the poison cannot be in the cup in front of me um to to make a, a good reference oh man shout out to wallace sean I, I was reading his plays I think that's the character in the Princess Bride, right? It is, is it, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. like um, he's he is an amazing playwright. It's so good. Yeah, I heard that. I haven't read any of his stuff, but it's good. How many plays does he have? Um, dozens. Like I would think he's like primarily a, a playwright um, and only secondarily a screen actor. 
Um, but I had a little group uh, and we would get together on Discord and we would do, um, I say I had, but like actually I should just show up and we should start doing it again. But we would uh, read through, uh, like, you know, do like table readings or like the Discord version of a table reading of Wallace Shawn plays. Um, and we did one that I really, I still think about a lot called the designated mourner. Um, I think that's, uh, I, I don't know what to, what to actually say about it, but it's, uh, it's a difficult play in the sense that it, it has a lot of like, it speaks through a character that is deluded in his complicity um, and who's giving up on something and is not resisting a kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a sort of like a near world that's neither future nor past, um, but it's sort of a, it's kind of a fascist dystopia that's developing. And it's basically a play about the kind of cultured people who are questioning their commitment to culture in the face of that horror and questioning their commitment to to, to their principles and kind of dropping off um, and in some kinds of cases being dragged off. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, like it's, it's a great play, um, but one of the things that's difficult about it is, you know, it's a play where characters are disappearing in a way that feels very sadly real mm. and also where you're really left in the position of like, you're alone with somebody who is rationalizing what he's done. Like you're, you're, it's the voice of a rat. Um, and, you know, we don't hear a lot of that, honestly. Um, right. Because mo most typically, you know, you hear stories of, you know, unexpected pockets of resistance and so on. Uh, and there's a small number of things that I've read that, that kind of, that do take that, that other perspective and they're, they're very nasty, like, you know, like reading like Tadeusz Borowski or something like that. I don't know how you, how you pronounce his name. I had to read that in college and it was like the worst, the worst summer of my life. I, I, for some reason, it was like it was the summertime and I was like, oh, yeah, like I'm going to read all of this like incredibly grim Central European lit and a lot of like, you know, uh, Holocaust narratives and so on. And I spent the whole summer reading that and I, I'm like, you know, and it was like beautiful outside. Nobody could understand why I was so depressed. Because I'm, because I'm, I'm, I'm not here. I'm in Poland, you know, so it's fucked up, you know, anyway. Yeah. When I say I'm not here, I'm in Poland. I mean it a lot more wistfully than I think, uh, that, uh, that was, a, that's a fun aside. I do want to, I do want to bring it back to just a sort of your general, attitude of the reader writer relationship um because i think that's an interesting thing uh as as a person who who now has a book out has your opinion of that relationship changed um yeah i mean of course it it, it changed through experience um i had a lot of anxieties around how the book would be read and so on that I mostly now think were just kind of silly. Like I was concerned, I was ex very excessively concerned, you know, not quite the cancellation thing, but I was like, people are gonna get mad at me for like, this book handles trans stuff in a weird way. Like it expresses a bunch of ideas about trans life that are wrong, um, you know, and it's characters expressing those ideas. 
Um, but, you know, am I going to be taken to task either for like, as though I had written, you know, uh, you know, the handbook for the enemy or something like that, or as though I had, um, I don't know, or as though I had maybe just not quite, maybe I, I felt like a question of like, did I need to use the book as a certain kind of political platform? Um, and I think it is actually in a way, like I do think that there is, like you can find my point of view in there by engaging with it, you know, like um, the characters who are wrong, like I, I, I don't think it's that hard to understand that they're wrong and nobody's gonna pick up the book and be like, hmm, yeah, this slide guy's got a lot of good ideas. You know? <laughs> um, or uh yeah but yeah like the the situation with readers has been great because people have gotten in touch with me and they've had conversations with me and like you're one of them right like and so like i i sure. feel like that's just like that's actually been good and basically i've learned that i shouldn't underestimate people's ability um to do that maybe maybe i'm gonna eat my words soon because i feel like the book actually has had a little bit of success like we we actually sold a few copies and like we're, we're getting out there we're getting reviews and so on and but what this means is that now the book is finally reaching people who don't get it um because it's reaching people who read it kind of for what i would see as very rotten reasons where somebody's like well you know it's like one of the big trans books of the year i gotta read that and i'm like well i don't know like if that's your attitude then sure but you better not then get in my face about whether you like it or not because you're not reading the book to like it you know right um and and likewise you know if somebody's like oh like this is one of the indie books right now that's like slightly popping off like let's see what it's about it's like okay but like do like come to it with a somewhat open mind and like I, what i really wish that i could do is get in the room with people and be like if you're on page if you're on page 50 and you hate it i would love it if you try to hang on till page 60. But at that point, bail, go read something you like, you know? Um, and I, I do occasionally see, it gets under my skin in a stupid way. Like it shouldn't, you know, like I read good reads. I should just stop reading good reads. Um, but occasionally I get these comments on there where I'm just like, wow, yeah, look, you know, like you could just, just put it down, be fine. Like I'd be fine by me, you know? Um, but uh, I don't know, maybe people feel like they bought the book and so they gotta, right. they gotta do that. Um, got to get their money's worth the, um, the dnf at least for me and i i also speak for my wife because she's she sort of said the same thing is like that almost strikes me as a failure of me as a reader rather than the writer if the writer can get me to buy a book um even used and open it up and read it to page 50 like i had better finish it and even if it's a one-star book, like, me not finishing it means that I can't really have an opinion on it because there's too much of an unknown there. Like, maybe page 60 is where it gets good or, or gets, you know, puts in the thing that I wanted. Maybe there's just some esoteric knowledge in there that I, you know, I'm not going to get unless I read all of it. Um. So I understand the sentiment of like, hey, if you don't like the book, don't don't finish it, especially because there's, you know, there's more books published this year than any person could ever read in their entire lives anyway. Um, but it like horrifies me when people tell me they don't finish a book. 
yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I will say that I've started to feel it a little bit because I started using Goodreads myself, not really with the interest of, uh, like just to, just kind of to keep a little bit of a log. And I noticed that as I started doing it, it started to pain me a little bit because I don't think of DNF as like a bad thing at all. And also there are certain kinds of books that like, of course you DNF them, right? Like if I pick up like, uh, you know, I picked up Jerome Schneewin's um, like enormous source book on like kind of like history of moral philosophy, um, you know, Montaigne to Kant. This book is like 800 pages long and like it's all dense and mm -hmm. a lot of it is extremely boring and a lot of it I don't care about, but maybe at some point in my life I'll figure out that I do care about and I'll go look and I'll be glad that it's there or something like that. But like I add a book like that to my library and I do spend some time with it because like I'm interested in like one or two figures. Um, and I want to be able to answer for myself a question like, so how unique is this person's thought, right? Because like I pick this up and I'm like, this is interesting. This is this is weird. This is actually kind of different than anything I had read. Um, but was it just sort of how people wrote at the time? Was that the ideas that were going around? Like how, how much originality is there? And it helps me to evaluate questions like that. Okay, great. So I'm having this encounter with, you know, this historian and philosopher of, of philosophy, Jerome Schneewin, um, who I think is great. But then um, it's like, but I don't, finish his books right mm -hmm. <laughs> because he, you know he largely is an incredibly wordy guy and he has anyway so according to goodreads it's like i'm not reading you know mm -hmm. and uh and i thought about that and it's like well okay but who cares what goodreads thinks about whether i'm reading you know and I, it, but it, it's it's actually kind of hard to keep my nerve around that like i because when i'm in a phase where i'm reading like a lot of novels or especially like if i'm reading a lot of chat books like i tend to read poetry very fast i feel bad for uh, poets that 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 I do that because maybe they want me to like really savor and kind of hang out with it. But um, I tend to read poetry very fast. So there are periods of my life where it's like you know, if I'm reading plays, like oftentimes I will I will actually do the play. Like I'll find some friends and we'll do the play. Um, and so that's just going to happen in that one day. Um, and so there are periods where like just depending on what I'm into, it's like finished, 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 finished. And I'm just like, yeah, like I'm really getting something done. I'm getting like a lot of points. I'm leveling up my paladin, um, you know, and I, I, I don't know. It, it's, I, I, I'm kind of off, off track. I mean, I, thinking about um, the audience concern, like, I mean, part of the thing just to come back to is like, you know, I, I say a lot of flippant stuff, uh, you know, like pretty much constantly. Um, like, I, I think I have a tendency to sort of see what I can get away with. Um, and I kind of check that a little bit because when I'm thinking about like, what were my actual worries about readership? Like, I was genuinely worried that my book would be like, used to diagnose me as some kind of horrible freak. I was genuinely concerned that my book would hurt somebody's feelings. I was genuinely concerned that, you know, uh, people would be like, how dare I do that? Um, and I was genuinely concerned that it would make me a target uh, in a way that would kind of like erode the compartmentalization of my life. Like, you know, people like finding my my job or my family and being like, can you you uh, employ this freak, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, and, I, and it's like, you know, it's a concern. Mm -hmm. um, and, and honestly, I, I always... And I mean, actually, the other concern that I had was um, that I would be taken up 
in a kind of like unstrategic way by people who I slightly agree with. So like, for example, like there's a lot of people who will see like British turfs or something like that. And they'll be like, you know what? Fuck turfs, fuck JK Rowling. You should read black trans authors like Jackie S. And I'm looking at that and I'm like, why'd you have to tag me in with these motherfuckers, right? Like they don't know about me. They don't need to know about me. They're not gonna like me. Um, but this is not getting me new readers who are reading me for me. This is getting me like a lot of very angry people who will actually probably be pretty sad because my book is not actually that strong a message in that domain. But I don't think it has to be. Um, I'm, not, I'm not doing that message all the time. But I was really afraid that stuff like that would happen, like kind of very like unstrategic stuff that would lead me to basically be made like a mascot for something. Um, and in general, like when I think about like trans literature, that was always a concern that I was going to be turned into a mascot. Like I went to a pride here and there was a lot of this kind of like, we're going to intone the names of these dead trans women of color. And I was like, man, like there's like two trans women of color here. I'm one of them. And I'm not about this shit. Um, not because I don't care about those people, um, but it, it's like, there's a feeling that like, I'm, you know, people like me are somehow like functioning in a ritual that I did not, you know, I didn't come there to be a part of. Um, like I can become this kind of like holy object to people as I have, I don't know, it's a sacralized identity, like with, like among queer identities, um, which is not according, that doesn't accord with my personality at all. Right. And it doesn't accord with my life experience. Right. Like I feel like I had it easier than a lot of the people who act fucking weird about that. Um, and, you know, and I think that uh, I have less political perspective than a lot of the people who act fucking weird about that. And they should just, you know, play their position a little bit more without making me into a, uh, you know, magical Negro for them or whatever the fuck, you know. And but but that that was a, a huge concern. And actually, it, it affected how I wrote. Right. And so I was like, well, you know, like I'm going to like really dislocate this character. Um, and I really didn't want to write something that was about trans, trans, trans. I didn't want to write something that was about me, me, me. And part of the reason was because I was so concerned about that. And now actually, as I'm writing this next book, um, which like I'm feeling good about right now, because I just like, I finished a new chapter on it. And it was like, basically like I've, I, I, I had a second draft and I sent it out to some early readers. And like, I kept having conversations with them. And I kept saying like, yeah, yeah, you know, there's a missing chapter in the middle where this is all supposed to be answered. And like everybody had kind of the same questions. And I was like, uh-huh, well, maybe I should actually just fucking do it. And I, I finally did it. And it was just like such a relief because now writing can just be work. You know, like mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I can just go and like put the hours in and it will get better. And like, I can have that. It's an amazingly satisfying thing when you get into that kind of state where it's like, if I work for three hours on my novel, my novel will be better. I don't feel that way every day. But when I do feel that way, and if I feel that way, like it's going to be like that for months, I'm like, yes, like this is it. Um, all I have to do is write. That's crazy. Like I just have to go to the office and just like start doing it. Um, and uh, so, but I, I kind of got there. Um, but, but like coming back to this, like you know, how much of the self to put in the in the book, and how how much should I worry about readers, etc. Like I think I kind of chilled out about that a little bit and uh, i mean my next book is definitely not about me like i'll, I'll say that um, but uh but i feel like i have a lot more comfort with like putting ideas that i have like more directly um 
in the book um, and uh, representing the point of view more directly. And there are scenes that I feel like, you know, like in a way, like I think, you know, like Daryl is a naive character. He, it's fun to read a naive character. It's fun to write a naive character. But fundamentally, it's like Daryl doesn't have a view of the world that I really want or need to defend. He more like he just kind of expresses. He emotes and he kind of like he rambles about things. And he's like, yeah, you know, like in a way, like, aren't we actually all the same color under a black light? You know, like, you know, and it, but he just like goes off like that. And it's not like it's not really challenged as an idea. It's just challenged as a reality. So like his ideas frequently, um, you know, grind to a halt as he actually has to live them a little bit um, or as he encounters other people but he doesn't really have ideas encountering ideas um, and he also mm -hmm. develops his ideas in a vacuum right like he's not a person that's embedded in communities he's not a person that's reading a lot for the most part although he goes and he does re go and read John Berryman you know Huffy Henry hid but, uh, the thought that they thought that they could do it made Huffy Henry angry in a way but you know, but that that um, I, I think I fucked that up actually. I, I gotta, I gotta do take three. We're gonna take this whole interview from the top. <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. I agree. I don't just. It'll just, be a different mistakes, conversation mistakes, entirely mistakes, next time. Mistakes and all, you know, gotta gotta do it rock and roll style. But I, I think the next book has characters who are um, a little smarter. Um, they're a little bit more intri into their ideas. Um, they do read more, um, they do talk to each other more. Um, and part of that thing means that I think I'm in a way a little bit more responsible for the play of ideas uh, in the book. And I'm a little bit, I answer to that a little bit more. Um, and that's been kind of scary because, you know, like one of the scenes that I have, like, you know, like my book um, follows, um, you know, a white passing, so white guy, quarter, quarter black you know, um, who uh, basically on, on account of his sort of racial fraction um, has a lot of attitude. Like he considers basically everybody else to be a, a total fake, but he's he's out here passing as white. So, um, but his, his attitude about that is that um, he, he basically takes a very harsh point of view, which is basically to say, it doesn't matter what race, you know, your granddaddy is. It's, you know, what does a cop see before he rolls down the window of his car? That's what race you are. And on that analysis, of course, he is white. Um, and he, but like, there's a scene uh, where he goes to uh, a Black Lives Matter rally and some of his friends get arrested. Um, and he is trying to figure out like, um, like, for real, like, why, why doesn't he see it as important to fight back? Like, what does it mean that it was his white friends that took him to this rally? And what does it mean that, you know, he's connected to a certain part of activism um, that was kind of like, you know, more like sort of the white punk side of things um, when there really is, um, you know, a very kind of, there is a sort of like black led and black centric um, activism like this is taking place in Oakland um, and so if you go to a rally in Oakland and, and you're, you're going out in the streets and you're, you're protesting the police and like you know everybody that you go out with is white or something like that like what is going on right but, but when I'm taking on something like this I'm like it's a little bit closer to the wire right because I've got to say like okay well what do I think about that like I'm not actually going to protest right now 
I ain't going anywhere. Well, part, partly that's my, my life, partly that's COVID, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, uh, that didn't stop plenty of people. You know, plenty of people are about that shit right now. Um, and uh, I think I would say good for them. Um, but having characters that take on something like that, you know, I'm in this position where it's like, yeah, like, honestly, you know, it's not just my characters thinking that through. Like, I'm thinking that through. Um, and my characters are making, in some cases, pretty fucked up choices. And I think, well, okay, but those are choices that actually I made, you know, that they were, that that determined my life for, you know, like, um, and, uh, you know, like, they have to face some questions about, you know, like, one of those questions is like, how down do you actually want to be? Um, and, you know, so questions like that, like, there's a sense that to me, I mean, to me, that's vulnerability, right? Like a little bit more vulnerability in the sense that these are reflections which ordinarily, you know, are done more privately. Um, and, you know, maybe for good reason, um, because you could imagine that something like that could erode somebody's activist commitment or encourage somebody to uh, throw themselves into something that was sort of reckless and adventuristic or something like that. Um, or you could, uh, you know, give away the secrets of organizing and make things <laughs> easier for feds that are infiltrating your group or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. Like, but it's like it's a little closer to the bone, basically. Um, and I think that's going to be interesting. It's also less it's less funny. You know, like I, I laugh, you know, as I'm writing it, but I think I'm I'm trying to get closer to the heart of things. And that I think I could have only done in a second book and I could have only done after talking to the people that I talked to about Daryl and having them you know, hit me up about this page, that page, and being like, like, people have contacted me who are actually in that lifestyle, or who were, and it was part of their kind of journey to wherever they were actually going. Um, people, people who are straight and gay and trans and cis and whatever, and like, you know, um, so I don't know, that's, that's that's actually you know main the main thing is I've been like really kind of inspired by the readers uh, that that reach out to me. Um, I can't I feel I can't say too much about it because sometimes people actually say kind of private things um, in their messages. But, uh, right. Hmm. That that's all very interesting. I I think there's a lot of that. I feel like I say this all the time. There's a lot of that that in what you said that seems um maybe not like i knew it already but like as you're saying it i'm like ah yes that is there in my brain already um which i don't know if that made any sense but i'm, I'm not that original i'm coming to the uh realization that asking the question of you rather than some of my other uh frequent guests um got me an answer that I wasn't necessarily expecting. And that's because you write a, uh, books with characters and plot and, and not just like, um, not just, but, and, you know, not theory fiction completely, uh, based off of a bunch of French writers with last names that start with B sort of like tomes of object oriented, whatever else. Um, which is attacking my more recent thoughts about literature uh, as analysis or, or analyzing literature. 
Uh, so good. I'm glad you threw wrenches in my brain. Um, but I, I I would love to know like kind of what those other people are saying. I've listened to a few episodes, but I don't remember the the, right. the B boys. So what, what is it like? You know that like Blanchot, Bataille. Yeah, uh, I got Bodia, Brecht, I know, uh, which B-boy, is not a French name. McCoy. Yeah, you know, just um, yeah, I I I definitely would go back and listen to the uh, the experimental writing roundtable that I did. I. That, that one gets me the most feedback. Like when random people DM me, it's usually about that episode, which uh, pleases me. Um, but reading a lot of that type of literature um, has led me to this idea of like, um, you know, the author can't really die, but the author can become unintelligible um, by the work being such that it is however that might be um so that like the book can only be analyzed as itself um and then of course it gets complicated when you add like context but like i don't know like I'm interested in a practice of like what context do I add to my experience of reading where like because I had a lot of that with Daryl um I don't have a lot of that with you know a Mike Klein book um where like he'll make a reference and I'll be like ah I get that reference or I don't know what model of car that is so I'm just gonna go through it whereas with Daryl I was like very much trying to um and probably to my detriment, like use it as a textbook almost in a way, which is probably a mistake. But like, you know, all of the characters live a vastly different life than I do. And so like, instead of just allowing myself to meet the characters in the book, I was like, I need to know what the cuckold lifestyle is through Daryl. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, like, I constantly, you know, don't know the, the life context. Like, I listen to a lot of hip-hop, and I'm like, I didn't I didn't know what a Murcielago was when I first <laughs> heard that song, Mercy. You know, Kanye, Big Sean, uh, 2 Chains, uh, Pusha T, can't forget him. But, I mean, when they talk, like, Lamborghini Mercy, the girl, she's so thirsty. And I was like, Mercy? Like, like the, you know, the... The, the, the kind of emotional or kind of moral concept, but no, they're talking about a, a mercy lago, but mercy me. But I, I didn't know that, and uh, catching up to that can be pretty important. I feel like I, I, I didn't, I didn't relate to the um, death of the author kind of concept, or like, or to the, you know, there, there was this thing, the new criticism in the kind of Anglo context that did something very similar um and maybe actually that's what that that some of that that french theory is responding to like this where we get these ideas of close reading um of uh the intentional fallacy and so on like this idea of like really forbidding any analysis of the author and i think that like these things are you know their attempts to find a really hard theoretical basis for a certain kind of institutionalized uh, literary study um, 
And I think that though trying to figure out those rules is so different than trying to figure out like what um, what's in a particular book, right? Like I think of that stuff as like kind of like literary meta theory or something like that, which is trying to organize some literary scholarship. But if you're encountering something not as a scholar, to limit yourself to that just seems weird, right? And and certainly if you're writing something, like to limit yourself to that seems really weird. Like when I write books, I think like I want this book to exceed myself in certain ways and to stand on its own in certain ways. And I want uh, my privacy in certain ways. And I, you know, uh, I want a certain amount of, you know, I suppose like personal and moral insulation between myself and this text. And so, but that's not really like death of the author kind of stuff, but it's like, it's actually the same kind of negotiations that I would make around like recording a podcast or just like being like moving around in the world. Like, you know, that one of the things that we do is create art. Um, and I think that in some ways, like, there's a tendency of some theories of the art object to make it, like, completely supernatural. Um, and I, I just, I don't quite see why, right? Like, we could say, like, you know, death of the author about, like, a, a carved table or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd be kind of half right in the sense that it's like, well, like, you know, like, actually... Uh, an analysis of this thing as like in the context of interior design, in the context of decorative art, in the context of the kind of just thinking about the materials, about the wood, about the balance of it, the geometry of it, whatever, um, you know, the long-term properties of how it's glazed and, and you know, all of these things, there, there are these valid perspectives on it that don't include, you know, thinking about who actually made it or how did it arrive here or something like that. But uh, it, it, to, to take on those interpretive lenses doesn't seem to have the same kind of drama attached to it. Hmm. Perhaps. I, I just remi- was just reminded of the idea of death of the author as almost like a social thing. Um, like, for instance, uh, like Pound, right, who was... A, apparently a big time anti-Semite. Um, uh, more than apparently. With Uzura, a half no man, a house of good stone. Yeah, I know that guy. So I, I read a lot of pounds. I mean, I say that because the only pound I've read makes no mention of the Semitic peoples at all, right? Like it's only just like brief passages about literature or whatever. And so like... No, he was fascist as hell. My man was Ezra Pounding off. <laughs> But, like, to an extent, we as a culture, in some ways, have, like, killed that part of him. Um, Like, specifically, there was a... a, When I was writing a lot of flash fiction and trying to find places to send it, there was a literary journal that, like, quoted him and was like, Hey, we like Pound but only for the stuff he wrote about, like, writing. Um, So ignore that. To the point where, again, the only pound I've read is about writing. Like, I I don't know anything about his anti-Semitic views, and at this point, I don't care. Um, I've probably read all the pound I'm going to read, and, like, I know that he had very strong points about writing that people like. Or, um, to a similar point, like, H.P. Lovecraft, where, like, 
it's it's almost like a religious thing where you like you say hp lovecraft and then you mention that you can't say the name of his cat and then you talk about how great cosmic horror is um we're like for whatever reason we've just killed enough of hp lovecraft the author to be able to enjoy his work without him um and then just make like the quick genuflection of like he was a racist okay azathoth go Yeah, I, I I think I disagree with you. Like, I, hmm. I mean, I, I feel like basically there's a question of, like, I can see there, it's a point, the point of view you're expressing does something for you, and I'm glad that you have a way of doing it, right? Which is that I would not want to lose the ability to appreciate art, to really see it, to really read something um, without, like, the constant distraction of the author's repugnant political views and so on. But I don't think that like a complete siloing is really the right way of doing that. Right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I think that actually um, what I would rather do um, is accept that, you know, there are instances where quite horrible people do produce great art and their horribleness is not separate from the art, um, right? The, 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 the separation um, is not really what needs to happen there, but that we should actually um, more just accept the complexity of that and say, like, I am reading some excellent poems by an anti-Semite today, and th his anti-Semitism is present in these poems, um, you know, um, and views that are highly connected to his anti-Semitism, for example, um, a sense of history as a kind of fragmentation and decline, um, which is connected to a cosmopolitan sort of spirit. Right. That when he's making those complaints, which run through his very weird classicism, like that is connected to his poetry. It's connected to what's good in his art and it's connected to the nice things that he says about writing. Hmm. Um, you know, like I, I love Canto 81 and, you know, I just pulled it up and, you know, and he says. Um, Yeah, what it, what thou lovest well remains. What thou lovest well shall not be reft. The rest is dross. What thou what thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. What, what thou lovest well is thy true heritage. Whose world or mine or theirs or is it of none? First came the scene, then thus the palpable Elysium. Though it were in the halls of hell, what thou lovest well is thy true heritage. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. Now, whatever. I mean, this is not a moment in the poem that. Um, says spectacularly much, but it's not like um, Ezra Pound's idea of uh, of nationalist commitment is not a part of what he's saying. There. Right. Right. Like you're not going to be able to peel those things off. And yet this is like, you know, one of the most beautiful poems in the later cantos, Canto 81. Um, and uh, anyway, but I, and I'm happy for people to go read that, but, but that's, that's part of the deal. And likewise, you know, like when you go to Lovecraft, like, when he describes um, his cosmic horror, like a lot of the horror that he describes is a horror of kind of uh, ethnic degeneracy through, right. uh, you know, race mixing um, and, you know, that people would have hideous deformities or something like that. And this reflects this kind of like it, it not only reflects the, the, the racism and the commitment to like a, a theory of biological race, which is at that time in the world fairly new. Right. Like people 
were surely racist long before Warcraft, but they, they the specific kind of biological racism um, that we really think of as coming out of the 19th century, because the science before that was not available, right? So you, you had to find a different reason, and it often had to do with uh, civilization, you know, um, mm -hmm. or that, those kind of norms. Um, but, uh, or sometimes, you know, you would have ideas about blood, but they were more connected to actual family lines, nobility, that kind of, uh, that kind of concept of blood, um, you know, or blood, which creates some kind of obligation to a land or something like that, that the, the, all of the, there, there are very many concepts of like heritable identity, um, uh, that has a, like an, an ethical valence has political balance and like, I don't know. And it's like, it's, it's in there. And so right. I, you know, yes, but I, I, I'm not throwing it in the trash either. You know, like right. I, I feel like, you know, it's, uh, I don't really love Lovecraft. I have to say, but, uh, but... sure. Yeah. I mean, he's not an easy read, you know, he can be too, too purple him and his contemporaries. I, I just finished reading a lot of Robert E. Howard and there's a lot of that too, where like sometimes, it's just a little bit much of the landscape there, Robert. Um, did you did you ever listen to the band though, um, Darkest of the Hillside? I Pickets? love that band. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got that song. One glance is all it took. She gave me the king's mouth. That 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 ruled. Mm -hmm. That ruled. Um, yeah. I I feel like though when you do divorce the racism from the cosmic horror, then like it becomes. A whole lot more um you can make it a lot more like relevant to now um when when the old gods become you know i don't know if you read it through like a cyberpunk lens or something i don't know it's now like my mind is bleeding all of all of the modern takes about cosmic horror and like social media or whatever you know the knowledge that that man is not meant to have or, or whatever um i'm also thinking though in kind of the other direction where the author gets killed to the detriment of the writing um i think about um rumi who i haven't read a lot of but who is like the the highest selling poet in America, the Sufi mystic who writes very deep personal poems about mystical experiences um, using the lens of this woman who's his muse. And people are like, man, love poetry, love it. Um, or just people, especially Western people, talking about mysticism in general, like these universalist type people who like strip the religion away from the mystical experiences so then the mystical experience can be attained by somebody else like you take away all the jewishness of the kabbalah so that you have like a cool roadmap to mystical experiences and but if you take all the jewishness away from the kabbalah like, what do you have? Just some meditation techniques and a cool diagram? Seems kind of useless at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely am I'm, I'm with that. And, you know, you do kind of wonder, like, what are you leaving on the table? You know, if you say that, like, this person is having a, you know, seems recognizably mystic, mystical experience, maybe, but that that is connected to islam what do i know about islam and you know personally i would have to say not very much um i would like to know more um but 
but that that uh, that point of view, like if we're sort of like, I I, I do worry a little bit because I think um, historicizing is usually a good idea. I, I, I like doing that, you know, and trying to trying to bring a little bit of context into my reading and so on. But also, um, the injunction to historicize can somehow at times feel very heavy, like it just sort of locks us out of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if we're sort of honest about like, what did we actually do? Like, how did we get here? I think that a lot of people have like cycles of more and less responsible engagement. Um, and that good reading involves a lot of sort of circling back. Um, and so like somebody picks up, you know, like the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam and they, they pick up Fitzgerald's translation. That's not a good translation, but it's a cool fucking poem, you know, awake for the morning and the bowl of night. Um, uh, has flung the stone that put the stars to flight, and lo, the hunter of the east has caught the sultan's turret in a noose of light. Dreaming when dawn's red hand was in the sky, I heard a voice within the tavern cry, Awake, my little ones, and fill the cup before life's liquor in its cup be dry. That's so good. But that's that's Victorian, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like, that's, that's just what that is. Um, and, you know, maybe then you could get more curious about like well for example like if you're into those lines then you might think okay well why am i into those lines am i into those lines because like cold cut sampled the computer voice uh, doing that poem in in a song with william burroughs in the 90s or something like i don't know um you find these things how you find them and then like do you care that it's a long poem, right? Like with, with long poems, I think that's always a sort of good question. Oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we'll pick up a long poem um, and we are kind of cheating. Like, you know, I read Canto 81. I'm not really reading Canto 81. I'm reading like the last like couple pages of it um, out of like five, you know, it's not super long, but it's, it's, it's long. Um, and we are only reading it through moments. Then you could think like, well, what does the author think about that? Because especially like an author like Pound, you know, Pound is a guy who, um, he was an imagist, he was the imagist, right? Like he's he's not a stranger to writing like a, a kind of pure fragment poem. He would, he would be willing to do that. For some reason here, he's chosen not to. For some reason he's put this in this enormous structure. So what what is the relationship of this moment that I'm grasping to the structure? Or you could say, what is the relationship of this thing that I'm grasping to the actual history, the actual beliefs that are that are connected um, to all of this, um, and I guess it's, I do worry that like if you create too much of a responsibility to do that, um, then people will actually just feel like all reading is homework, mm-hmm. um, and like it just it just becomes too hard, right? Like there's this sense where it's like, uh huh. So, what is the path then for non-scholars? You know, what is the path then for people? who are interested in irresponsible kind of enthusiasms. Like in my, in my, for some reason, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the, this music genre, Psytrance, like if you ever listen to like Spangle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it's super world music kind of stuff. And I, yeah. I have a bunch of, I've, I've written a bunch of characters who like it. There's like characters who talk about it in the next book as well. Um, you know, like Simon Posford someday is going to sue me and he's going to be like, you know, like you, but I, that, that, um, I actually I don't think he would. I think he's I think he's a cool guy. He he released an album that's on Bandcamp during during lockdown. It's like so good. Um and uh, it's like probably, that's probably the only like corona album that I, I really listened to. Mm-hmm. But um but the thing is like 
it's like this maximum amount of like I'm going to drop in these kind of signifiers of like timelessness and universality and mm -hmm. like I'm gonna have like some chanting that like okay is that like some South American chanting but like oh wait but there's a didgeridoo oh wait but that's a that's that kind of sounds like a that kind of sounds like a sort of North Indian zither instrument and you know oh this tablet you know and, and it's just sort of like this thing where it's like mm, you know obviously music like that expresses a kind of colonial entitlement right like the only way that this music I think could have arisen um, was from a fundamentally condescending position which sort of treats like the outside of you know Europe and America the sort of imperial core everything else is sort of um, it's not history, it's materials for the universal history, which is written by, by me, mm. you know, and, and there's a, there's a selfishness to that. And there's a weirdness to that. And like, if you're embedded in one of those specific traditions, it's like, how much does it, you know, well, it's a tricky situation, right? Like maybe you're a didgeridoo player and you're actually kind of glad that you can get a lot of work, uh, because space time continuum is hitting you up. And it's like, yeah, I'm trying to cut a record right now. Uh, you've got, you got Terrence, we're, we're going to do, we're going to do a little rant, you know, and, and it's, you know, that, um, and that's alien dream time. Although who'd they find? They found a guy that lives in Marin, right? Stephen Kent. Um, but, uh, I'd, I'd love to find his music. I, I gotta, I gotta find what the deal is. I, I went and looked it up and it's like, he plays concerts actually. So, um, uh, you know, the, the record I'm talking about. I don't, alien dream time. <laughs> I uh, don't, but I love is, listening to you talk about it. So, it's so crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good. Um, this is like a Terrence McKenna album called, uh, uh, alien dream time. Uh, this is good. It feels like we're, we're, we're doing the Rogan thing right now. Like, wow, man, like yours look like BMG or something like, you know, I, I'm, um, yeah. So how oh, long God. before we get manatees to do LSD, though? That's the real question. <laughs> well, okay, so John Lilly already basically did that, I, right? Yeah, like, that, there was, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, Atrocity Guide did a great um, video about on about the uh, the Dolphin House. Atrocity Guide does a lot of good um, documentary. She did a good good one on Breatharians, which I really enjoyed, too. Um, yeah, that's funny. I was just trying to say the most Joe Rogan thing I could think of, and it actually is almost a real thing. So, oof. <laughs> um, but the side trance thing is interesting because I love Enigma. Um, I, I I really enjoy the whole like pan flute over Gregorian chant sort of thing. Um, and I would like to believe that the type of people who make that music, like actually travel the world and meet local musicians, kind of like a go-go bordello thing, right? Like that dude's just going all over the world and meeting people. And he's like, oh, you played the bongos? Come join my band. Only in a sillier voice. Um, yeah. At, at least you know, that's what it seems there are like. people like Mehdi Aminyan who's doing this as well, right? And uh, like, it's, I think that shit is actually cool. Um, and of course, it's not like the most like scholarly, authentic approach, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I'm kind of glad that there's this kind of like casual ethnomusicology that's just like, we're going to uh, we're going to bring in everything. And um, and it delights. Um, and, you know, 
that is actually one of the functions of music. And it is something where I don't actually believe that the local musicians are all just being like, fuck, I've got to play on this record where yeah. they're just like, you know, it was so, like fucking Bono called me and he was like, I want oud sounds on my next record. And so I'm in there playing the oud, getting paid tons of money. Oh no. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and you know, it, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough situation, but I think that like, it's desirable to kind of keep the double perspective a little bit where we don't slip all the way into like an unearned scholarly condescension, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think a real temptation for me. Like I always am like, yes, well, you know, but do you, do you have the context? Have you historicized appropriately? Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, is that, you know, appropriately culturally sensitive, et cetera. And it's like, what I would like is for those questions to arise, you know, step two, step three, that those questions should come up and that we should take them on kind of responsibly, but that we have to think of like a, you know, a staged sense of appreciation um, that includes a little bit of like innocently fucking around, Mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, you know, maybe not even that innocently, just, just going for it. Yeah. I, I have that naivete to me that like, you know, I, I really like the idea of, it being possible for somebody like me to go halfway across the world, meet some friends, learn a bit about their culture, you know, become at least part of that friend group. So part of that community to an extent, and then taking a piece of that with me home to now incorporate into myself, right? Like I like the idea, um, that, that culture doesn't have to be stagnant and like here's where I hit the wall right like because obviously it's not um I'm I'm part of a couple like European pagan reconstructionist discord type areas of the internet especially like anti-racist ones but there's like this idea that like I don't know, man, if somebody from, you know, the South Mediterranean came up to Iron Age Poland, learned the language, would probably be doing the religion too at some point. Um, And, you know, obviously this is like very pre-colonialism, so nobody has those questions. But like, I like the idea that it could be that simple again at some point. Where, like, if I make friends and they teach me, you know, their people's style of meditation and it works with me, then I can just do that and not have to worry about, like, being evil doing it, you know, or stealing some of the magic away from it or or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it seems very situational. Like, I don't think that there's, like, a one-size-fits-all cultural appropriation kind of rule. And I think that a lot of people got weirdly stuck in the last like 10 or 20 years with like uh, like a kind of a floating guilt about the possibility of cultural appropriation that's not really based in what people in any given culture are saying to you. Um, and so it's like, you know, like for example, like, you know, Daryl has a moment where he worries if it's like okay for him to be like a white guy that's into jazz and the blues. <laughs> and I was like, of course it is. There were white guys playing in those bands from you know from very early on um and so and like it's not like oh it's all hunky-dory right like you could say um there's something actually seriously concerning about 
the ways that um, jazz tilted into a conservatory art or the way that black people got fucked over so that they didn't own their masters or they got got worse record deals or something like that um, and the way that you know music is written off like as like totally degenerate and evil and blah 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 until it's popular coincidentally also a time when white people are able to make money from it as well and you know like that that kind of um that kind of thing like fucked a lot of people over along the way but daryl's concern about that is not really connected to that history like that history is is a problem um and you know like if you're like a jazz fan or a jazz player right like you should learn about that you should think about that but that is your history uh, and it's ongoing but um but you know but i wanted to represent the way that somebody could just kind of get stuck on this sort of like weird distillation of that history into a form of very useless guilt um and so he just gets stuck like that um but I, and i think that this is sort of the difficult thing to express right because it's not like i want to say it's all hunky-dory it's all anything goes it's that um i think it's like you can you can take these things much more situationally and uh in many cases like you know like i um i remember like a, a uh, like maybe like five or ten years ago like there was um a white woman that was involved in santeria and like a bunch of people on tumblr got incredibly mad at that and it was like you know cuba is a multiracial society like it, this isn't the first white person to be involved in santeria and it's like in a way you're actually imposing a weird kind of method on the the that religion um because don't they choose who they certify you know like this this shit was done legit you know this is a person who's that's that's what she's about um and uh like the people who had every opportunity to object did not so like maybe we should avoid speaking for them unless we actually know something um but it, you know but this is a case of like how that kind of like uh aimless formless cultural appropriation discourse can can really uh lock us out of experiences um which i think it's you know i would like to be open to those experiences including being open to those experiences in a way that like isn't quite right like i listen to a lot of ragas lately but i don't always listen to them at the right time of day like i love listening to rag yaman right you know um and uh but that's a first quarter of the evening raga right but like that's not a concept that really you know in any of the musical traditions that i have is like you know that that i don't have that that concept that music has a particular time of day yet in certain kinds of indian classical music um music has it's uh, a little bit more of a sense of occasion and there are songs that are played at certain times well gonna tell you i i cheat i might listen like i might like hang up and then just like listen to that track because like i like listening to that while i write and uh you know, but that, that and uh, and how much do I know about Indian classical music? It's very little, you know, like I've been I've been reading about it, you know, this sort of Drupad um, style of, of, of music. And it's uh, it's got a lot of like very distinct um, kind of musical concepts, including like a concept of like, you know, scales that are different on the way up and on the way down, um, which, uh, you know, I am informed the, 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 the melodic minor in, in like Western classical music does have that. Um, but it's not very, it's not like a very pure feature of the music 
uh, in anything that I could find. Like, I was really curious, like, is there Western classical music that you can sort of hear in this way? Um, but, uh, but I haven't been able to find it. Um, and, but, but it's, it creates this very strange sense of this scale that is, is different going up and going down. Um, and you can sort of see that it's like, oh, right. Like there's this, there's a whole history that prevents us from playing like that. Um, because for example, uh, if there's a history of, of making a lot of, of doing a lot of counterpoint, like counterpoint is recognized as this part of sophisticated composition. Um, well, but counterpoint is going to be really complicated, maybe impossible, maybe just sound bad. Um, if you have a, a scale that is going, that is different going up and down. Likewise, um, big harmonies become a bit difficult. Um, you know, fugue forms become a bit difficult. Um, you know, large orchestras become a bit difficult. Um, and you could imagine that this, uh, and then also there's like a friendliness to microtones. You know, um, you could also say there's very little of a culture of improvisation. And when there isn't as much improvisation, then it's harder to hear what the scales are because you only hear the notes, right? The scale is somehow involves like counterfactual notes uh, because when you're in the scale, you're hearing what notes would be sort of okay right now. And the concept that you could have a scale that's determined by dynamic factors is so cool, right? That's so different. Like I play jazz and when I play jazz, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, like, well, I'm, I'm over this, like, you know, I'm over this E flat suspended nine, uh, you know, dominant seven, I'm always playing that chord, you know, that's, that's my, that's my thing, you know, and, um, and so I'm, I'm going to go off over that chord, and then I'm going to move on to another chord, and I'm going to go off over that chord, and like, that's, that's what I'm going to do when I play music, but those are static, that, that, I would think of those as static factors, right, it's not like the notes that I'm allowed to play depend on the direction, of course, there's like figures, right, there's sort of like micro scale stuff, but there's not a larger sense of like, uh-huh, well, you know, on your way up. But then I started to think about it and I was like, oh yeah, actually, you know what? I do do that because I noticed that I only really play ascending arpeggios um, and, or that I really like playing, you know, kind of like weirdly stacked arpeggios. Like I like moving in fourths um, and that kind of stuff, um, I'm only allowing it to myself in one direction. And so listening to the Indian classical music kind of helped me see that. And that it didn't make me a better player because I still suck. Like I just don't practice enough, right? But like it, stuff, things open up, right? And it's like, that did not come from like a really scholarly engagement with Drupad. It didn't come from apprenticing myself. Uh, it didn't come from, you know, uh, you know, these devotional practices that are actually a part of a lot of Hindustani music. Um, and uh, I respect all that. And I, and I recognize that the musicians that I'm listening to, most of them did go through those things. And, uh, and so, you know, trying to hear it. But like, I don't know, like that, that to me is like, that feels good, right? To have like a little bit of a slightly irresponsible engagement. And then you let the history come in and the history becomes part of the encounter. You let the cultural reality of this music come in and that becomes part of the encounter. You know, like one of the things that you could be afraid of right now listening to Indian classical music is whether this stuff is being connected to this like Hindu nationalist kind of like construction of like a like sort of a historical like super Hindu identity. Um, Right, like this shit freaks me out actually, right? Like I think that there's there's something very 
like uh, very concerning, you know, about BJP and whatever. Like I probably shouldn't be talking about this on the radio, but but I I don't have a lot of connection to the situation. But I I, I really, um, you know, I think it's a case of uh, a very concerning, very concerning nationalism, at least. Um, and you know, you could say that like, well, sometimes the the authenticity trip. Um, can blend really, really easily into nationalism. Um, and if you're getting involved with like Asa True and all that, like, and you know about that. Um, and uh, and I, I think it's very, but to, to sort of have like, you know, to play it super clean, I think kind of would miss it too. Now, baby, you move your body. We'll do the rest. Baby, and I must confess, I can profess, knowing that I won't get stressed.